Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for downloading The Tully Show. I think you will find this week's episode with Mark McGrath fun and deeply informative, uh, depending on how much value you place on knowing who wrote the theme song to Hill Street Blues. I'll get that going in a second before I do two very quick notes. Number one, everybody keeps asking me how they can help me and help the show, and I sincerely appreciate that so deeply. I think I found another small little way. If you're one of those people who's downloading the show on like iTunes or Google Play as opposed to streaming it on like a Spotify, go ahead and subscribe to the show so that you automatically get downloads of every week's show. Just downloading it helps and by subscribing you'll automatically download. Also, this is your weekly reminder, patreon.com. I'm doing I've already listed all the things I'm doing. Lots of stuff. If you like this show, I think you'll love the Patreon. If you're downloading this on Monday when the episode comes out, tomorrow night we're hanging out on a streaming video service called Crowdcast and watching a a horrible movie. I know nothing about this movie. My patrons chose it. A young Seth Green, a young Jack Black, I believe Rollerblades and Flying are involved. It's called airborne just the tip of the iceberg of the fun that's happening over there come and join us patreon.com slash mike tully okay you ready to start this show uh your host of the evening is a really funny dude um i forgot his last name but i've seen him before he's really funny uh give it up for mike coming to you live on tape during week 11 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, once again, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and the host of Mark McGrath's 120 Weekends on the 90s on 9 over on Sirius XM. Hello and welcome back, our dear, dear friend, Mark McGrath. Mike Tully, how are you, my friend? I am so good. I'm enjoying a beautiful spring January day. Yeah, you know, going into week 1170 of this pandemic, just being <laughs> That was my favorite. That was my favorite intro. Yeah, it is 1170. Every week is 1170. But you know what, dude? A little bit of cautious optimism. I'm not mm-hmm. putting any politics into this, but still a bit yeah. of cautious optimism and a yeah. a sense of a grace coming back. So uh, I'm yeah. doing more optimistic than I was last time we spoke. It feels like something has changed. I can't quite yeah. put my finger on it, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> and you know what's great? I'm getting emails from this uh, this really silly kind of mildly iconic um, pharmacy slash lunch counter in Beverly Hills called Mickey Fines, where I'm on an alternate. Oh yeah, list. you know Mickey Fine? Oh, are you kidding me? Going there for years. Right, so I'm on an alternate list for the vaccines from Mickey Fine, and I'll never, ever, ever get it because, of course, it's going to go to the healthcare providers and the elderly. And Beverly Hills has between old rich ladies and <laughs> and, and and rhinoplasty, they've got plenty of <laughs> each of this. <laughs> but just on the odd chance there's a vaccine that's about to go bad, you know, like the groceries at the grocery store that they have to reduce. If there's any of those kicking around, I'm on the list. And I'm not on the list because I think I'm going to get one. I'm not going to be vaccinated at Mickey Fines in Beverly Hills. It's just because I get an email every week giving me a little update on what's going on in vaccine world. And it, it makes it feel real, you know? There's ton, there's millions of back backlog of vaccines. So I think as we get a 
national plan together, which we might have should have had to start, call me crazy. Uh, I think we're vaccines will be more available. And, uh, you know, I, 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 there is a, a cohesive light at the end of the tunnel for the first time, though they did cancel Glastonbury today. Which bummed me out. Really? The fe- Sorry, Tully. It's a uh, it's a big gigantic festival going on for years in the UK. Uh, that and Reading are kind of the big festivals of the summer. It's kind of their Coachella over there, and they just canceled it. So that was a little bit of a bummer. That to me is them tapping out a little early. But you know, a festival of that size, you kind of have to get your lineup, and there's a whole bunch of moving parts. So I understand them, uh, you know, pulling the plug on it. But that was a bit of a bummer. But we've got other uh, festivals to fry. That would, well said, that would uh, ordinarily be in June, because I attended the Glastonbury Festival. I attended the 30th anniversary. I would assume then that you have performed at Glastonbury at some point or another? For some reason, they've never asked us. They've never invited us to Glastonbury. Uh, You know, that's usually the the cool of the cool. It's the Coachella of that that world. Um, We just know we never got invited to the cool guy's table. You know, uh, we, we played some of the other festivals in Europe, like a Puckle Pop, uh, Lowlands festivals, Dower Festival. People will probably recognize if you're a musician or a band. Um, but yeah, no, we never got invited to the big Reddings or, or the uh, or the Glastonbury's. But, you know, we never got invited to Coachella either. So uh, we're just about a couple years away from the irony invite, you know, the ironic mm-hmm. invite to Coachella. So, you know, it's going to be us, like Rick Springfield, you know, and... So we're looking forward to those days. <laughs> on, a revol- on a revolving stage, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the ironic stage. How come they don't have an irony stage at Coachella? I mean, what you're welcome, by the way, with that idea. Us, Flock yeah. of Seagulls, Rick Springfield, and Smash Mouth. See, you're putting me in a situation where I need to compare you to other bands and go, well, but they've had blah, blah, blah at Glastonbury, but I have no choice but to do it. When I was there, I was there in uh, 2000. And I didn't know to bring enough cash. And I didn't know, because this was the world of 2000, there was literally one automated teller machine uh, on all of the premises. Uh, so uh, one of my least favorite bands, uh, one of my least favorite big bands of the 90s, not all time, and we've, and we've talked about it before, is Live. I get mm-hmm. it. I see, you know, pop song crap. They wrote seven hits on one single. It just was mm-hmm. not my, uh, on one album, just wasn't my jam. I watched an entire live set at Glastonbury because I was waiting in line at an ATM. <laughs> and I think they came on after Eagle Eye Cherry. So I don't think it's out of the question that there could be, if Save Tonight Guy can be there, who also performed on Saturday Night Live, by the way. Good I know. For him. Well, he has, it comes from excellent pedigree. You know, his his his, uh, his his sister's Nina Cherry. You know, mm-hmm. you know. Remember, she's in, you're feeling good today. You're looking good in every Nina Cherry. Yeah. And I think their their dad is uh, a very uh, internationally known jazz musician. So there's oh, some okay. kind of cool pedigree factor there with Eagle Eye Cherry. Also, I gotta say, in all fairness to Glastonbury, we did not have a lot of success in the UK. Every morning, got to the top 10, reached number 10. We played Top of the Pops. We played the Chris Evans show. So we did all the right things, just like it, it debuted at number 10 and then went down. It sunk like the uh, it sunk like a Led Zeppelin. So I don't think we ever really qualified, in all fairness, to play at Glastonbury. Well, that would be the big difference. And who really knows why some things cross over and some things don't? There's, there's you know... Um... Like, for example, Bush, to me, would be a really good example of a band that, uh, of course, the across the uh, ocean, the two countries are influencing one another. Bush, to me, if you give me an advanced copy of 16 Stone, I go, that's cute. That'll be good for all the kids who don't get to see Stone Temple Pilots and Nirvana while they're right. playing over in America. I never, ever would have guessed that that would, because they're 
such a weirdly not grunge grunge band and he's such a weirdly not grunge grunge, grunge guy <laughs> and yet right and yet it and yet it worked uh, you know I, i've often wanted to do an episode of this show where we talk about the people who are massive everywhere in the world the robbie williams is of the world that can't break here but i'm just as interested in knowing about the bands that are massive in america that have never cracked over there because for for the most part 90 95 percent it's exactly what you would think. And then there's these weird and I'm very surprised that you guys did not enjoy at least some, you know, more success than, than what you're describing. Yeah, it, it is strange because you know, Australia embraced us, Japan embraced us, but like Europe and the UK, dude, we, we couldn't, if we went there right now to go on a tour, we'd lose money. It would be like, we'd be playing a couple hundred people in a club. So it's just, it just didn't hit, you know, for whatever yeah. reason. Look, Robbie Williams plays stadiums in every country in the world, including yeah. Mexico, including Canada, but not in the United States. So that is an interesting topic, you know, across the pond, vice versa, which one, you know, chicken, and the egg. The, the crazy thing now is though, uh, Tony, and I was talking to some of my friends about this. If you have a hit now because of the internet and social media, it is a hit everywhere. Now, if you have Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang, Gucci Gang, your little pump, little pump, go play India right now because the song, you know, the internet is the scene now. There'll never be another city like a Seattle or a San Diego because the internet, the scenes reside on the internet now, which is such an interesting thing. So an artist like, um, I don't know, I mean, Post Malone, he's the anomaly because he's got great music and it's huge anywhere. But an artist like, uh, you say, Little Dirk from Chicago, you know, rapper, he's big all over the world because of the internet, TikTok, you know, all these, you know, sort of uh, social media platforms. So it's interesting these guys are doing it around the world now without the might, if you will, of a major label. It's crazy. That's right. And so it becomes more about the the app or the site or the community that they're coming out of that becomes the group of, oh, this guy's a TikTok rapper. That's as right. As opposed to this guy's an ATL rapper. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And now the good news about that, you can get huge quickly. <clears throat> the bad news mm -hmm. about that, it can be taken away just as quickly. That it's hard to build a career on just that sort of uh, dynamic alone, you know? Yeah. The children are notoriously fickle. and They and, are. And the, th and the thing that makes you part of the cool crew one week can make you the biggest loser in school, still liking it a week later. Don't I know it. I was a brank dancer in the early 80s, man. Don't I know it. <laughs> Don't ever. Oh, you, I meant to mention to you, um, I'm, I can't remember his name. The the guy from Breaking 2 passed away. Uh, he was in your video. Yeah, Shabadoo. Uh, Shabadoo. Here's the funny thing. Boogaloo Shrimp was in our fly video. Mm -hmm. Shabadoo was in every morning. We love wow. breaking so much that we, you know, if you're if you're in Atlantic, you know, in the 90s, you had a hit on a major label. They'd give you like a million bucks to make a video. So we just reached out and got guys we wanted to meet like, hey, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, come and be in the one it's over video. Hey, Boogaloo Shrimp. So yeah, Shabadoo, rest his soul, uh, recently passed away, is in the beginning of the every morning video when the guys are break dancing on top of the uh, cars when I pull into the... Uh, the uh, roller rink, um, Kelly Leak from Bad News Veristyle. Yeah, it, well, we, my wife and I—I I, I had recently exposed her to Breaking Two. It was a—it was a pretty big night in our in our house, and she immediately started following Shabadoo on Instagram. Did she so. really? That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, why no, you married a, her, man. She she knows she's her. A, she's a keeper. Yeah. It's a shame though, because he like literally posted. He was one of those guys. I, I think COVID, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. literally a guy that posted the night before. And he, he did a video post. Hey, guys, we're feeling a little sick, but I hope you, you know, take care of this. The next day he was gone. So this COVID thing, man, it's crazy.
do we know for a fact that's what it was? Because he said, I'm not feeling well. I just, I can't get it together. I can't get out of bed. But he said he'd already taken a test and it came back negative in that same post. And yeah, then, but so, someone said he had it, but it was yeah. uh, coupled with so, some other condition. I don't want to say, but the, uh, COVID was yeah. definitely a part of his leaving this earth. And the same with Debo. Debo had the same kind of thing. He was doing a podcast yeah. the night before and passed away the next day. So, you know, if you guys are feeling sick, man, get yourself checked. Yeah, absolutely. Positively. So on this show, gosh, it was already a month ago, I spoke to you about the the new quote-unquote music releases of December 40 years ago. It was 1980. And at that time, we were talking about ACDC's Back in Black, and we were talking about the Queen soundtrack for uh, Flash Gordon. And you predicted at that point, and I definitely assume that you were correct, that if we were to continue this conceit, and do the same type of podcast for the new releases from January of 1981 that it might be somewhat comparatively slim pickings because people put out these big albums so that they could sell them at, at Christmas. And I took a look and I was really, really pleasantly surprised. I'm actually more excited to keep this conversation going and talk to you about the stuff that was... Because these are the dog days. You know, it's like the the movies that come out in January and February when movies still came out like they used to, it wasn't quite as true in the last couple of years as it had been, but it was a pretty sure sign. If there was something that looked like it should be a big summer movie, but it was coming out in January, (laughs) the people who made it knew that it was awful. It was the dumping, it was the dumping season. So I looked at the new music releases from January of 81. And instead, what we have is not a bunch of current superstars of that era, but a bunch of people who are releasing, releasing music that is either going to make them a star or is an album or two before they become a really well, that's, that's exciting. That, that's really cool. That's cool to hear. Yeah, so these these are kind of these are these are especially fun to me. Let's refresh our and to- memory. And totally, just mm-hmm. to qualify really quickly, some yeah. some bands didn't make that fourth quarter and then just got kicked into the first quarter. You know, just True. like it's still a business. And if you did have a Genesis back then, you had a I, I don't know ELO, you had a a Bob Dylan, or, you know, an A list earner back then. You didn't make the fourth quarter because the record wasn't ready. You certainly weren't going to wait. You know, so you might have put it out in that first quarter, but the line I think it was to put out in the holidays. And now I'm going to make everybody feel old. Nevermind was released 30 years ago by Nirvana. Just thought I'd throw it in there since we're looking back. What I find particularly crazy about that is I, and and it's just so impossible to get outside of yourself and to see things from any through any other eyes other than your own. But I feel like music has changed less in the last 30 yes. years than. Look, dude, the first song I'm going to play you is Arthur's Theme by Christopher Cross, okay? <laughs> and think about that 10 years later, which was Nirvana, right? I know. And that, that's yeah. what you're saying. Now, think about Nirvana 91, and think about, like, Cage the Elephant today in, 2000, in, in 2021. You know, there's not, there's not such a gigantic, you know, musical bridge as there is from Arthur's Theme to Smells Like Teen Spirit. It was 10 years yeah. later, so you are so correct. On the aesthetic, the style, the turnover of style and music. I mean, in that 10 year, you had the Stray Cats come out. You had mm-hmm. hip hop make an emergence. You had hair metal. I mean, look at all the genres that were defined during that 10 years, between 81 and 91. And between 91 and, 2000, and 2021, how many new genres of music? Zero? Okay, yeah, exactly. 
it's not out of the question that a band could come out and sound more or less exactly like Nirvana and be a real popular band all over and again. And do well. Right. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I I know the Yacht Rock thing has enjoyed an extended renaissance, but... <laughs> But if, only an ironic, ironic, specialized group. That is exactly right. If somebody were to come out sounding exactly like Christopher Cross, they would enjoy success among the the Coachella, you know, circle. Not with your mom. No, exactly, I exactly. There'd be like a Williamsburg resurgence, you know. Um, you might way, make one of those. I, I, I'm ready for that. Oh, me too. Me too. Yeah. And and you know, there are bands making an honest effort and doing stuff like that. And certainly retro bands like Leon Bridges is amazing. Meyer mm -hmm. Hawthorne is phenomenal. Guys that kind of take an old genre of music and do it, you know, do it authentically. And it sounds like the era as well. Uh, but yeah, if you had a Yacht Rock, uh, if you had Christopher Cross come out today with Sailing, it would just wouldn't, it, it wouldn't enter the charts. It just, it wouldn't. I'm sorry. There's just not a lane for it to get there in today's marketplace. Well said, well said. Okay, so let's see. In January of 1981, just for a little context, the first DeLorean rolls off the production line, I think, over in the UK. Number one at the box office, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, a movie which to this wow. day, it, it gave me a, a lifelong irrational fear of garbage disposals. Well, was that Lily Tomlin? Was that yeah. Lily Tomlin in that movie? Yeah. Now, I, I never saw it, uh -huh. Obviously, there's a garbage disposal. Uh, for, for us who don't aren't familiar with the movie, what is the garbage disposal component? So here's the thing. In Southern California, I have never lived anywhere that did not have garbage disposal. In New Jersey and New York, I never lived anywhere that did. So this is a very, you may not realize this being a native, and maybe they've all got them back home by now, but we didn't have those. Those were very exotic. That, mm -hmm. that seemed, those seemed like very, very rich people. I didn't realize how standard they were. And so in the movie, she gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and finally she's in the sink and she's in the garbage disposal, and the maid is listening to music on headphones, and oh, she's God. screaming at her not to run the garbage disposal. <laughs> So that's my that is my introduction to and to this day people know I've talked about this before. I'm terrified that I'm going to stick my hand in there and somebody is going to hit the switch somewhere else and it's all because of Lily Tomlin. Dude, is so I don't trust myself. You know when you get a spoon or something stuck in the garbage disposal? Yeah. I I I, I reach my hand and I go, "Don't hit the switch. Don't hit the switch." Like I know. you're like a weird psychological like, you know, don't jump over the edge of the cliff. Like I I I would hit the switch like, you know, the things. So I understand the psychosis <laughs> with the garbage disposal. Though I am, you know, basically a Southern California raised, uh that and divorce are kind of, you know, kind of indigenous to uh growing up out here. That's right. And on television, Dynasty debuted this month 40 years ago. Debuted? The debuted. I, th I thought that came in. I thought that was a 70s sort of carryover. Wow, I didn't know that. All oh, this is from Wikipedia. Take yeah. take all this with a, no, no, with a I got Wikipedia you, I got you. sized gr grain of salt. And uh, the police drama Hill Street Blues debuted as well, which on a musical note, not Im immediately, not in the same month, but by the end of the year, the theme song of Hill Street Blues was a massive hit single. This is another episode we'll do someday. Instrumental hit singles. Do you know the artists by that, Tully? I, I mean, who did the Hill Street Blues theme? I remember seeing it in the charts. I remember hearing it. I can't yeah, remember the yeah. artiste. I will find out as I refresh everybody's musical memory what that was all about.
beautiful piece of music, man. Truly. It's it's really a decent it's a decent Great. song. It's bizarre that that was ever something that could chart. Well, yeah, and it just shows you like going back to '81, what was happening. That was on the charts along with sailing, along with what I like about you by the Romantics. That is diversity. You know what I mean? No, the the top forty was wide. It open. really was a a wild west of, yeah. of stuff that could still make it in. We're not even going to talk about. I don't know if you know Stars on Forty Five. Oh was yeah, this, like, I love no- the Stars on Forty Five. Yeah, that was cool. Was, uh, love, loves, loves a strong word. I, I loved it because it played, took. I mean, it played every hit I loved and and, and put them all together. You know, was Stars on yeah. Forty Five? There was a Beatles version and there was a pop version of Stars on Forty Five. Am I correct? I think you're right about yeah. that. There was definitely a, a Beatles version, and there was this medley factory that was um, Scandinavian, I think, of some sort. Definitely European, and it's just it sounds like you're at the roller rink. You're always yeah. ready for the doo to happen while they're meddling these things up. The Hill Street Blues theme song it says here is by Mike Post featuring Larry Carlton. Larry Carlton might be a saxophonist. Larry Carlton, very famous jazz guitarist. Okay, there you go. There you go. I believe. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, well, then we'll look that up. Is it too much? I or have is it too a soft... No, 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 no. I have a soft spot, and this is a very specific thing, but I have a soft spot for sad or melancholy TV theme songs, particularly MASH. when the show was not yet. Yeah, MASH, Cheers Yeah. is yeah. a good example Cheers. of that. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, what is that? Is that St. Elsewhere? I don't know, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay, now I'm going to look up the St. Elsewhere theme song. Larry Carlton is a jazz guitarist. I don't think of a lot of guitar on the Hill Street Blues. Something crazy happened to him, too, in his house in the Hollywood Hills 30 years ago. Someone broke in there and either like, there was a murder in his house. Something crazy happened at Larry Carlton's house. I forgot what happened, but uh, just just wanted to bring the show to a screeching halt real quick. Hey, there are no rules anymore, so let's see. Pers- <laughs> Personal life. It doesn't have anything. I believe you, but it doesn't get into the, the details of that on his wiki. What the hell is... Okay, so here's the theme from so Sam guitars, right? So I was correct about that. So he probably just... Yes. Looked, he, Probably knew his way around theory and songwriting and helped our, our man Dan post out with the uh, top 10 hit, you know? Participated in thousands of recordings with artists such as Steely Dan and Joni Mitchell, one of those guys. Yeah. Right, right, right. That, okay, let's see. Is that ta- it's not Taxi? It's not Taxi, is it? I think it's a sitcom for some reason. Good one. Yep, that's what that is. Simmons okay. drums, man. Taxi. Is there more? No, no, more okay, taxi. I think you're onto something there. Um. Yeah. The people at home are going. I was yelling, "Taxi, you idiot!" You know, it's funny because I always associate that sound with a comedy, even though it sounds like it would be a Hill Street Blues, St. Almost Fired type, uh, you know, that that 
ironically, that that theme song didn't fit the show, but completely fits the show, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it was just something that you'll never see. I don't think you'll see again in, well, I guess now that we don't have network TV anymore, it was something that you were never going to see again in network TV. Now I guess it would be kind of a cool thing if it's in, you know, your like flea bag type show or something like that. Right. Where you you acknowledge that these are people who are finding happiness among sadness and you signify that by you know, there's a bunch of alcoholics sitting in a bar all day. Let's make make no mistake That's about a good point. it. If we're, and the you monotony know. of life, you know, like kind of, you know what I'm saying? It is kind of. Or driving, uh, a, or driving a taxi or what have you. Driving a taxi, yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay, so n- none of these are hit songs from uh, January <laughs> of 1981, but uh, although we've already discussed it, damn right I'm going to play Arthur's Theme by Christopher Cross. Hell yeah, you are. I fucking love this song. Hold on. I'm going to tell you a wonderful Christopher Cross story. Is it the guitar? Oh, yeah, I already told you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm running I, out I, of I, stories. I know we all are. I've I've repeated that to people. Okay, hold on one sec. It was such a beautiful uh, gesture, man. That is such fine craftsmanship. It's amazing. I could do a whole episode. It would be so much work. It would be ludicrous. I will need to have a minion working for me if I'm ever to do this. But movie theme songs where the second verse is the plot yeah. is one of my. <laughs> That's right. One, one of my favorite 80s tropes. The first verse is about this general, hey, we've all kind of felt like this guy. But then the second verse is, Arthur, he does as he pleases. He inherited lots of money. Then he met Liza Minnelli and she bought him a tie. <laughs> and he gets drunk all day. <laughs> Just lays out the plot in the second verse, right? I mean, listen, I he got it. paid to write a theme song, goddammit. And he was going to incorporate the movie somehow. But... Yeah. Man, that's just such a beautiful piece of work. And you just forget what a gift that man's voice is. Christopher Cross has such a unique, beautiful voice and just uh, stylization. It kind of fits who the man is. Just He's, he's as, as, as beautiful as his voice is, as beautiful as his soul is. And you know, I don't like to get cheesy on these things. Actually, it's all I do. But he's just a great, great guy. Uh, the guitar story real quickly. Uh, we played Santa Barbara Bowl, probably about 2000. Sugar Ray's right on top of the charts. Chris, Christopher Cross is from that area. Uh, after the show, we're backstage. Our tour manager go, listen, Christopher Cross here wants to meet you. We go, of course, you kidding me? So we walk backstage and there was five guitars. There was five guys in the band back then. There was five mini Christopher Cross, uh, Taylor, special Christopher Cross edition guitars, all four of us, all, all for us, each written with its own personalized Christopher Cross letter on Christopher Cross stationery. And yes, it had the seagull with the bended leg on it like the cover of his record most most selfless kind gesture i've ever received uh in, in music and around the uh the whole the the whole the acoustical it had uh sa- the lyrics to sailing on it so there, there you go my little back you know what i think the guitars are in here i love my taylor and it's not not as cool as that yep that's a taylor that's a taylor gig bag you got there Taylor gig bag, and you guys think I'm lying. It just happens to be right here, and here we go. I play this quite often. 
and uh, it's going to be hard to see, but it's it, it around. If you can look, see around the holes. Yes, I can absolutely. I can read it. Yeah. You see, you see the the lyrics there. In the wind to carry and the, and me. And the wind and the yeah, and the wind will carry me. It's a Christopher Cross edition, and he signed it right in the middle of there. So there you go, man. It's just uh, such a beautiful. Just you know, just a wonderful experience on my whole musical journey, by, provided by Christopher Cross. His uh, his music is like a cool drink of water on a hot day. It's just it's 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 fluid, you know. It's uh, it's effortless. It just yeah. It's it, it's it, there's no effort in his singing. It's just there's no wind in it. There's no breath. There's nothing makes you feel awkward. It's just it's it's seamless. His music. Now I think we've talked about this before, but. He famously won the Best New Artist Grammy in 1980, and what a travesty. They didn't give it to the credible guys. They gave it to the guy who sold records. It's almost like music is a business. And I'm going to refresh my memory of who was nominated because I'm saying they might have got it right. Right. And for some reason, that he kind of started the Best New Artist was a curse thing. Remember that uh, getting getting it? I think Randy Van Warmer got it one year. I'm not really uh, uh, sure, so he probably would have started it. But you know, I mean, Christopher Cross uh, continues to this day to have a wonderful career, but he never achieved the uh, commercial success that he did on that you know that that first record. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so I think uh, that was started with the uh, the stigma of getting the best new Grammy artist was going to be. Uh, you know, problematic or like, like, you know, that a career killer for some reason, you know? Right. Well, both Nana and Eagle Eye Cherry might have been nominated for, <laughs> for that thing. Hey, I would have loved just to have been nominated for that, man. You yeah, me? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I went and listened to Raw Like Sushi recently. You know, when you just go, oh, this one song is so good. There has to be more on this album. And Buffalo Stance is even, I like it more now than I did at the time. It was, uh, I think I was a little young. I didn't realize quite how cool it was. And that's kind of the tune on that album. Yeah, yeah, you know, it is the standout track, and it's one of those songs, like, like Soul to Soul, remember Soul to Soul, keep on moving, don't stop, no, keep on moving, no, no. they're kind of like, Soul to Soul like, was another kind of like retro R&B, early 90s type act, and like, you know, much like uh, Buffalo Stance, it's, it's a timeless song, you could put that song out today, and it, it would sound current, you know, yeah. uh, that, that's, that, that was very... Uh, very akin to a lot of the music about uh, uh, late 80s, early 90s, that R&B, Nina Cherry vibe. The nominees for Best New Artist, 1980 uh, Grammy, Christopher Cross, Irene Cara. What a feeling. There you go. Ronnie, Robbie Dupree. Why don't we steal away? You're good. Why don't we steal away? Amy Holland. Now you got me. Okay. I'm out. And, and the pretenders. So, yeah. But Christopher Cross over the pretenders. What had the pretenders done in 1980? Precious. Well, you know, yeah, their their debut record's pretty solid. We, we, yeah. I would got to say because you know they they kind of made uh, they dare I say and be so bold they might have made the first classic rock new wave record. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That, meaning a record that was considered new wave and marketed as new wave, but then crossed over. You started hearing all those songs on the classic rock stations next year, Aerosmith, the Led Zeppelin's in Boston. So might've been one of the first new wave acts that was marketed as a new wave act. Cause Chrissy Hine comes from that 77 punk rock, Sex yeah. Pistols, Susie and the Banshees world. Yep. So even though she's from Akron, Ohio, she moved to, 
to uh, the UK to, to get her musical chops together and get in the band. She, she saw there was more opportunity there. So I think the tenors might've been the first band that the cl classic rock genre said, yes, we welcome you in. Yes, there's yeah. gonna be more to follow Elvis Costello and bands like that, but I think uh, the pretenders brought, uh, kicked down the doors. Yeah, I remember Johnny Rotten told me a cool story that he was watching The Stranglers, who he was like, you know, and they were awful. And I'm like, I like The Stranglers. And he said, yeah. <laughs> he said, yeah, they were, they were good on record. They couldn't play. And he said, so I was in the bathroom and Chrissy Hine was piercing my ear. And how cool is that? Well, I, come on, man. Yeah. I've never even heard that story. <laughs> I named my son Lydon. I've never heard that story. That's insane, man. God, I'm jealous you got to uh, interview him. <laughs> that, was, that was the highlight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's gone off the rails, man. He's crazy. He's like a Trump supporter now. It's all, all of crazy. Course, of course he is. What are you going to do? Five. Okay, let's see. New music, January 1980. This is obviously a... Uh, 81 rather this is a massive success right out of the gate it's probably one of the biggest hits of the year can't find it in my heart to dislike that song no but you know there are songs with legs and there are songs with no legs that song you know it's it, it uh, that song was so gigantic at the time i Massive. again i i qualify because i'm old enough to remember it being on the charts so mm -hmm. big lovely sheeny easton yep. this beautiful australian uh artiste i believe or irish i'm gonna i i don't know i've just got australia hanging hard let me Let's know let's see I know she had been discovered. She was like, there was like some documentary and she was like walking across the street in the background and they were like, who's that girl? Make her make records. I, really? I didn't know that. Heaven forbid she could sing. Sheena Easton is Scottish. Scottish, for fuck's yeah. sake. But uh, she, you know, and then would go on to have an incredible run with Prince. Prince That's kind right. of adopted her, took her in her wing and did Sugar Walls and all these songs. But Sheena Easton was gigantic in the 80s. And just, you don't hear much Sheena Easton music today no. unless you're playing it yourself. You, you know true. what I mean? That, I think that's what I mean with having legs. I don't hear 9 to 5 on like, you know, any classic stations. And I rarely hear it on any like 80s throwbacks or anything like that. So it's interesting how some of these songs that were so big at the time, so big, like era defining songs necessarily, you know, don't have legs today or songs that weren't as big as you thought in that year are gigantic now. You know what I mean? There's, there's, it kind of it work both ways sometimes. Oh, you're talking to a guy who, yeah, listens to, you know, 80s countdowns pretty much every weekend. And it's amazing sometimes when a song, I, I can't think of a good example, but a song that we know is like a stone cold 80s classic, you find out it peaked at like number 17 or something yeah. like that. Some of them are big MTV hits and that is what accounts for it. But then there's yeah. also, I think also a Grammy Best New Artist winner, Robbie Neville and C'est La Vie, which was like a number two song that nobody had, nobody who was born a week after the year that that week <laughs> came out will ever get to, will ever get to enjoy. Yeah, I think the Sheena Easton thing, had that song come out in 1978, it would yes. probably be a big part of 70s nostalgia, but it has no place in 80s nostalgia. I think you're so spot on on that because you're right. It's still coming out a little late 70s. I mean, you know, we're still doing work in 9 to 5. We're still Dolly Parton a little bit. has the same sort of uh, 9 to 5 lyrics in it and just feels 
melody wise and songwriting wise, like a song you would have heard 77, 78 with a little bit of 80s dabble production into it. You're yeah, exactly. entirely correct about that. It was just too early. It was just too, it was too late. I mean, yep. uh, uh, for the decade. Exactly. It was very successful in its own right, but yeah, it doesn't fit at all. We want to, we already want to have people wearing those weird angular sunglasses where one lens doesn't quite fit up with, <laughs> fit up with the other one, the new wave thing. And she's not a part right. of that. I mean, you think about it, like, like love my way was two years away from that psychedelic furs, you know, uh, thriller was three years away from, from that. So you know what I mean? But you're talking about era defining songs. So we were, we were kind of recycling the stuff we didn't want to hear into the eighties. And unfortunately that song was going to be a casualty. And there's a big, big dividing line that you can hear stylistically among this stuff. I'll refer again to the interview I did with the music critic and author Michelangelo Matos, who wrote this book about 1984 musically and how there's this big dividing line and how he never would have written that book about 81 or yeah. 82 or 88. And you can hear in the rest of these songs that I'm going to play for you, the people who were part of the thing that had been and the people who were part of the thing that was going to be. And it's a very, very, very clear line. The The thing that had been, although they existed and flourished for some time after 1981, would apply to this band right here. I think this is the, the biggest album of their career. But I know If the world just passed us by, There you go. Sticks off of, I believe, their concept album, Paradise Theater. Those guys love that. What with the Mr. Roboto and what have you. Yeah, you know, Sticks always looked at it as kind of, kind of an American queen, if you will. That's you know, fair. when when you when you hear bands, you know, there's not a lot of bands you hear like you go, oh, they sound exactly like Queen. You never hear bands, boy, they sound exactly like Sticks. I mean, they they were, they were doing something very unique, very difficult. The songwriting was out of this world. The musicianship. Dennis DeYoung, Tommy, Tommy Shaw. I mean, these guys are on some other shit as songwriters and singers. I know they didn't really get that, that well, uh, uh, go uh, get along that well together as personalities because they were such alpha male songwriting types. But you listen to these songs. Whether you like the best of times or not, you better appreciate the craftsmanship, the songwriting, the vocals. And I'll be damned if Sticks can still not pull that off today. They still they take such pride in their sound, their gear, their their dynamics. It's 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 really a, a lost art that just and that's also something that that people can't stand that preciousness with the music and it's all perfect. You know, it's a they're an interesting band. You know, I hear a lot of people go, yeah, it's not exactly like sticks. You know. Well, I'll tell you what that just reminded me of, and I just thought of this while we were listening to it. Now, when you talk about the the monster ballads of hair metal, you say, where did these songs come from? Well, they'd say, Dream On by Aerosmith. Does Heaven by Warrant really sound that much like Dream On? Does Does Heaven really sound that much like Stairway to Heaven? Does heaven, could you sing the chorus of heaven to the chorus of the best of times? Hell yeah, you can. Well well said. Well said. You know what? Those, you know what? Those power ballads, you know, you got me thinking. Those power ballads owe a lot to Sticks. Yep. Ario Speedwagon. Yep. Uh, Little River Band. You know, those 70s AOR bands, way more than Dream On. Way yeah. more, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, That's it's, interesting. 
it's really damning Dream On with faint praise because Dream On is is an archetype. I can't really think of another. Okay, well, it sounds like Stairway to Heaven, but other than that, it's it's different enough from Stairway to Heaven that it is its own thing. Later on, Aerosmith was going to be doing the sticks thing with their power ballads, aping the <laughs> warrant <right>. thing. <laughs> They were going to pay everybody back. Believe yeah, me, it all, it's all a- cyclical. Angel sounds more like sticks than it does like dream on. That's exactly correct. Exactly correct. So yeah, man, it's, it's a symbiosis. Everybody's borrowing and sharing. And, and, yep. uh, but yeah, it, it's interesting when you think where these things came from and uh, man, you are so spot on with the, uh, RO Speedwagon stick comparison with these, these, these firehouse, uh, power ballads that were to come in the late eighties, early nineties. Okay, we have two artists in a row here, one of whom had a, had a lot of success with the album we're about to talk about, one of whom did not. These are two people who came from relatively unsuccessful punk bands who would become massively successful solo pop artists, and you probably are able to... Uh, who do you think I'm talking about? Can you guess? Well, I think you're talking about Billy Idol. That's one. I don't know if you'd okay. call the other one. I don't know if you'd call the other one a, a punk band exactly. A, a band that was really, really massively hyped. I don't think they enjoyed any success, really, to speak of while they were around. Although one of their songs is now a bit of a classic, uh, so much so that they made a motion picture about this band. Okay. And then the other would be the Runaways? That's exactly right. So Joan Jett puts out the Bad Reputation album. And, you know, I could play Bad Reputation. We all know what Bad Reputation sounds like. And uh, Do You Want to Touch is on there. Turns out I didn't get a chance to listen to it, but uh, I Love Rock and Roll is not on this album. But an earlier, slightly different version of it is a B-side to, I think, Do You Want to Touch? So that was a song that yeah. was already already being <laughs> brewed. And they did the old flip over the thing. A DJ in Cincinnati flipped the forty five over, and the rest is history. Yeah, no, 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 I, no, no I don't. I don't think they. That's the thing. It's different enough. It was not the hit version. There's a, she put oh, it out. Oh. She put it out as a B side, and then reworked it as a single for the, probably the next I, album. Know, I'm shocked. I'm not familiar with that unsuccessful version. You know. God, God damn it! Now I got to find that too. But first, I found this very interesting. We know. Do you want to touch me? Do you want, you know, we know Bad Reputation. Here's the first single from, I think this is Joan Jett's solo debut uh, from 1981. Um, uh, The album's called Bad Reputation. People will know the song. You don't own me. Don't try to change me in any way. You don't own me. Don't tie me down because I'll never stay. The ghost of Phil Spector was alive and well in that session, right? <laughs> hey, my God. I don't, I did not know that she covered that. And I don't know that vocally she would ever put herself out there as much as she did on the, the verse of that cover of You Don't Own Me. And it doesn't really sound like Joan Jett. But when the chorus comes, God damn, I love Joan Jett. She is hard not to love. She yeah. is hard not to love. All she's been through, her commitment to rock and roll. She's just always living and breathing. Every interview is like, you know, when I started the band, I'm thinking of it. She's all committed. She's so, she is, 
one of my top 10 all-time favorite rock and roll personalities yeah. by far still delivering the goods incredible produced the germs first record i mean her pedigree is flawless her documentary she did bad reputation if you guys haven't seen it it's a must see just to see her relationship with her manager kenny laguna is one for the ages in terms yeah. of uh rock and roll relationships it's just yeah. incredible and, and, and if you ever thought she didn't have a voice man that chorus which she just heard right there that is dog whistle vocals right there man that's incredible I can't really think of another rock star that I've met that I've just felt cooler for having spent a yeah. little bit of time with. I was on her tour bus, got to ask her a couple questions, and subsequently later on I was on the Bouncing Souls tour bus. This is at the Warp Tour, and we'd all been doing a bunch of drinking, and we and, and she was standing outside their tour bus, and we wanted to invite her to come in and have a beer with us, and we all everyone was like, I'm not going to ask her. Who's going to ask her? And finally we watched... <laughs> We were very drunk. We got to watch the one drunk guy go out, and we could just tell by her body language that Joan Jett was not right. wanted no part of us. Right. And, and in the meantime, so she's she's on the tour bus. She has a bike to, that she's taken around with her backstage because the Warp Tour is like a summer camp. And I just remember having met her 15 minutes earlier. She comes past on her bike. She's wearing leather pants, no underwear. Her ass is half <laughs> hanging out, and she just looks at, at me and my friend Heidi, and she goes, "Hi guys," and I'm like, "I've never felt cooler in my entire life than Joan Jett with her ass hanging out knows who I am." All you needed, man. You know, yeah. by osmosis, she makes you cooler. Just in their, in their, in their presence. And here's a funny story. I was on a plane once, and I, you know, every now and then I get sit in first class, and I get called to uh, the de uh, to the front little desk there where by the gate. Uh, but Mark McGrath, please come up to the front. And I'm like, oh God, they called my name. Everybody's gonna be staring at me. You know, I'm like, oh, they're probably, pilot probably wants to meet me or something. You know, they mean showbiz. So I get to the front and the girl goes, I'm sorry, Mark, we have a problem. And I go, oh, nothing we can't solve, honey, don't worry. She goes, um, I'm gonna have to move you because we have a celebrity sitting in first class. <laughs> And she's with someone and they're not sitting together and they want to sit together. And I go, well, just out of curiosity, I'm excited. Who's a celebrity? She goes, Joan Jett. And I go, I will do anything for Joan Jett. Let me guess, is Kenny Laguna yeah. the other person? She goes, how did you know? She goes, I'm just a big fan. And she goes, me too. She goes, well, thank you, Mark. I'll give you some extra miles on your on your thing. So so like I, I, I they, they got to sit together, blah, blah, blah. And then the poor girl came back and had to go, oh, Mark, I'm sorry. I didn't understand you were a musician as well. I go, listen, I, that was the greatest thing ever. I would I would switch sweets to her any time. So I got to eat the biggest piece of humble pie and have the greatest Joan Jet story in the world at the same time. It's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so I think I have, this is just what comes up when I search Joan Jett, I Love Rock and Roll original version. I, I wanted to check this out too, so let's enjoy this yeah. together. If you ever wondered what producers do, yeah. that is the perfect example of what production does. That version versus the other version. Let's be honest, note for note, same damn song. Same drum fill to start it, but the, the one that was successful has been broken down. They took all the reverb off her voice. They brought her voice up closer, made it more intimate. They also took the out of the thing, like, and they took that out. And there's a kick pattern in the drum they took it out and they made it more four on the floor. Instead of ba ba, it goes down that, 
dun, dun, bum, bum, bum. Yep, you know, we so will like rock you. little subtleties that made it better because the song is structurally the same song. Identical. Just little tweaks. That that is production one hundred and one right there. One song, not a hit. The other song, a classic number one. That version, if I can believe the YouTube description featuring uh, Jonesy and Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols. Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols, yeah. Yep. Oh, that's got Jonesy written all over it. Yeah, you know what? It's sloppier mm-hmm. and it's raw and mm-hmm. it's got a little more punk rock production to it. Whereas I Love Rock and Roll has a classic rock, you know. It's yeah. kind of what Rick Rubin did to the cult on Electric. He took all the frills and all the delay and all that. Get those out of here. We're going to make it bare bone ACDC dry. And then that's what happened with Electric uh, for the Colts Electric. And it gave them the whole new audience here in America. And that's exactly what happened with I Love Rock and Roll. They took all the fancy stuff out of there, all the bells and whistles, all the flanges, phases, uh, reverbs, and just made it a dry I Love Rock and Roll. And you got an ACDC classic. Now, I wonder if you will or would say the same thing about the original Generation X version of Dancing With Myself or the Billy Idol version, because to me, I was doing my homework and learning my stuff, you know, when I was coming up and did you know Billy Idol used to be in a punk band and so you get the greatest hits. And to me, the original version is also a hit song. I don't know if it was a failure of publicity or if the world wasn't quite ready for it, but for those who don't know, before he re-recorded and re-released it and it became maybe his um, signature hit song, Dancing With Myself is a song that Billy Idol recorded with his band Generation X, and it came out in January of 1981, and this is what that sounds like. That's a great song, man. That's so good. (laughs) Do you know, I totally, that was another K-Rock thing where that song was a hit on K-Rock in Los Angeles. So I'm as familiar with that one as the other one, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, I'm with you. You know, I, I, I think... What, why it might not have been as big a bigger hit, and you can. You, you, I don't know if Generation X had a major label deal right. or the same distribution here in America, right? Where when he signed to a major label, they re released that song and they might have tweaked it a little bit, like obviously they did, but it got a lot bigger push. So I'm with you, the hit was there, yeah, that song was there, you know. That's one four five at its absolute finest. I could also do a show just on, right. on, on, on one four five songs that are. Still really, really good because it's the most right. basic, straightforward. It's a one four five for people who don't play guitar. It's the Ramones. Blitzkrieg Bop is one four five, and sometimes you listen and you go, "Oh, that's that chord progression that I've heard seventeen million times." And somehow, uh, sometimes people still inject new life into the most absolute basic of um, of chord progressions. And that song right there is a really, really good example. Absolutely. And a massive guitar rip. And look, there's only 12 notes. It's how you wrap them, man. There's been 12 notes since Beethoven, you know? Yep. Let's see. We got up. Man, there is so much music we're not going to get to. This uh, month was chock full of really interesting stuff. Elvis Costello is, I think, no, I'm not an Elvis Costello guy, but I feel like earlier on you have that. I almost think of him as like a one-man sting where the early police stuff is it's not heavy, but it's frantic 
it's energetic. If you're not in the mood, it can be a little much. And then by the time Sting goes solo, you might think he sold out or it became an old man or something, but he's he's smoothed it out and it becomes much more of an adult sort of thing. This, I think, is classic Elvis Costello caught right in between, sort of bridging those two eras of Elvis Costello-ness. Um, people will recognize this song. I had never known the name of this song, but I certainly am familiar with it. Uh-oh, I felt a little Bruce Springsteen vibe there for a second. I almost felt like we are in the other show. <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. little Steve Strange on the uh, keyboard. The keyboard there is so beautiful. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you said something interesting about guys like Elvis Costello, Sting. You could put Paul Weller in those categories. They, you know, when he started with the jam, they kind of started rough and tumble because that was kind of like the flavor. Yeah. But they're such talented songwriters that they could evolve into like working with Burt Backrack was what Elvis Costello, Elvis Costello eventually did. That's right. You know? That's right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You can introduce the song. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. You mentioned Paul Weller. And I'm I'm cheating a tiny little bit on this episode, and I will stop doing this moving forward. It's very, very tempting to play advanced singles, but I'm going to try to stick to when the albums were released. Since we started this conceit in December of 1980, there are singles coming out from albums that were released prior to that. And I will just, because I don't think... Well, obviously, the jam were never as big in America as they were in England. I mean, the, Paul mm. Weller was adopted with pride as like a, an extra member of Oasis. It was a mutual admiration society. He's on some of their songs and stuff like that. That's because it was they were really big. The jam were really big in England. I don't know that many people listening to this will have heard this song. It's one of the more beautiful songs you will ever hear, and it was released as a single in January of 1981. <laughs> Man, so good. What a masterpiece, dude. Yeah. And the lyrical content talking about dreary day-to-day life in the in the UK and hanging out your nappies and picking up your milk bottles and the kicking the balls, Mac. I mean, that's entertainment by the jam. What a song. And dare I say, was that their last single released as the jam? They were soon to break up. They might have a couple more coming. They were gonna come to the Style Council, which had ever-changing moods and all those great stuff. But that's entertainment. It's such an amazing song. I think Paul Weller was 21 writing songs of that depth and magnitude. Incredible. You know, there's a kid. God, what the hell is his name? Who? Uh, Jake Bug? No, I think it's King Cruel. Oh, yeah, if, yeah, 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 yeah. If you, if you like that and, and Billy Bragg, it's this. he's not a child anymore, but he was when he put out his first big single. And it's very, very similar. It was just like the, the pasty, freckled kid with the acoustic guitar looking out his window and writing a song about what he was seeing in some rain-slicked cobblestone northern English town. 
and uh, it, the, the King Cruel the King stuff that put him on the map was very affecting stuff in its own right and uh, very much in that same vein. Let's see. From their fifth seems to album, be one of those English songwriters that comes along any generation. You know, the Arctic Monkeys kid came along. He really started painting. You know, Mike Skinner from the streets was doing that cool kind of uh, rap, hip-hop, talking about day-to-day life. Every, like, five, six, seven years, there's that kid that comes along, that Jake Bug. Uh, What's the kid's name? The Arctic Monkeys. It's escaping me right now. I don't know. Um, I have no idea. Uh, oh, yeah, whatever. But, you know, the, the one that really does just a great narration on English life. And it works. The dreary, like you said, all, describing all the dreariness and the, you know, just the common, common people, if you will, in UK. To coin a phrase that's one of another example of those songs written by Jarvis Cocker of Pulp. That's right. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. That's right. I fell upon it. That's Entertainment is not the final single from the jam. I'm seeing Funeral Pyre is a jam single. When I saw David Bowie perform at Glastonbury, he covered Absolute Beginners, describing it as the the most beautiful love song that had been written in the last 20 years or whatever he said at the time. So there's more more jam singles to come after. A town called Malice seemingly comes after that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Okay. Does the band television personalities does that mean anything to you television personalities yeah no okay okay so I'm, should it and uh that's debatable i love this song and it came out in the same month and it also so to a t what you were saying about this school of british songwriters you know describing what they see and stuff you could not describe the song this angry silence by television personalities any better I read an article one time in the Onion AV Club that was an introduction to twee. And twee is a real dirty word. And I just seem to specialize in the 80s, <laughs> the 80s pops and the glam metals and the discos and the twee. And twee is for the very, very, the most sensitive of sensitive indoor kids writing, <laughs> writing rock songs. <laughs> I don't even know who's the biggest twee act of, of all time. I don't even know. But I, I made a playlist out of the stuff that the onion av club said was like the best of twee and i i've copied it this is still in the cd days i gave copies to numerous people who i got into at least this twee comp and this to me is one of the absolute highlights these are is there a popular twee song that i know um, like is ed sheeran considered twee like you know the 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 heyday of twee has long since passed um i think there were people wearing Twee as fuck t-shirts at one point. Really? Okay. Wow. Twee, it's a twee whole genre. It's it originated. Well, I don't want to tell you where it originated from. Actually, one of the bigger twee bands is called Tullycraft. You're kidding me. And they have they have there's they have a couple of really good songs. I mean, this related movement is Cuddlecore. Um, does does beat happening mean anything to you? Um, when when was this happening and how how is there a genre music i don't know about okay i'm so angry at myself well then we'll just do a whole episode and i'll just play you the finest educate me educate me okay the me is to twee me it's uh, it's known in england or at least to the extent that anybody remembers it as c86 because there was an nme compilation of that name that came out characterized by its simplicity and perceived innocence some of its defining features are boy girl harmonies catchy melodies and lyrics about love 
I'm trying to think who would you it's more of like a bands are influenced by them uh, built to what year what year oh, okay so 80, year 80, 86 is when c86 started okay that makes sense gotcha. and it this was like a a thing that was going on behind the scenes in the early 90s would be the heyday would everything but the girl be twee no everything no no no, no. that's way too slick no. these are people who don't know how to play their instruments kind of band so it's lo-fi super lo-fi, lo-fi crazy lo-fi minimal got you yeah and and this so there might not be a, a big hit from the twee movement correct okay i would say bell and sebastian i would describe oh them, yeah of course i would describe them as a late era twee band that's something fro- frog in my throat i love that song a little okay. frog in my throat yeah I was, I was a really big fan of this Australian band Frente that made it onto MTV a little bit. I've heard bit. of them. Certainly okay. heard of them, yep. Yeah. I've actually managed to record a song with their singer recently, which is one of the highlights of, of, my, musical, <laughs> awesome. of my musical career. Okay, so this song is, it's crazy. It's just so, they, they do a pick scrape, even though they have no distortion. It's just garage something at its finest i'll play you a bit of it and then we'll talk about it in in greater detail i love this song The second I verse of that, uh, I spend my days at home writing silly, silly poetry, writing songs for the girl I love, but she doesn't love me. That's the second verse. That's what that's what Twee home run. is. It's but and now is is television personalities the beginning of Twee? That um, I, I'll actually or the, go, or, the or the the germination, the spark that led to C eighty six. Maybe. Well, they're obviously at least five years before that. And by the way, they kept going. I. I got a promo copy of an album that they made in like 2007 or something. So they kept Come going on. for a long, long time. I don't know. The Shags. Is that a major label? Is that a major label release? Hell no. Let's see. Um, well, I, I, I don't know. 81 was such a weird year, you know? Let's see. It says here. I mean, this would be a re-release that I'm looking at now. It says this was re-released 1990 on Fire Records. No. This never got. I no, I I don't no. think these. Ever... It sounds like a demo. It sounds like a demo. Oh hell yeah! And I, and I mean that. I mean that with 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 love. Yeah. You know. And you could. They're, they're smart. The, the singer, let's just say, doesn't have the greatest voice in the world. Agreed. Coming from a guy who doesn't have the greatest voice in the world, so they made a super long ass part with the guitar screech that had no vocals in it, but it was still cat 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 pat. You know, it was like it was it, it, it's uh, it's 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 a brilliant use of your no talents. Yeah. Oh, there's so many, there's so many songs that I listen to that I don't care what anybody else, you know, Rocket Ship is a band that made some really incredible music. It's just this whole, the Softies. I love your, I love, Softies I've heard of, because okay. I love that name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's, the, the Softies had a, have a song called Hello Rain that's well worth a listen, a uh, very post-Smiths kind of thing. You can definitely see this stuff is running alongside the Smiths. Yeah, the Smiths are not a, no, twee, like, a twee band, but they're 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 very much of of a like that. Television personalities very much love the jam. 
yeah. and are trying to write jam songs yes. a little bit, you know, but it's, it's a very difficult task to do because Paul, Paul was a genius. And with all due respect, maybe the lead singer of Twi- uh, 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 Tells Your Personalities might not be in the same songwriting class. Yeah. Okay. Now I don't even know where to go from here. There are, <laughs> there are so many. So Marvin Gaye has an album. It's not one of his. What album was it? What, was there a hit off it? In Our Lifetime? I don't think so because there was a time there in the early 80s late where he kind of you know he kind of went out to pastor a little bit yep. and then he came back with sexual healing which got him back the grammys and all that because he went to europe and fucked off for a while yeah like and, and then he was really off the rails for a while but then he got he got he got healthy he was on a health kick and came back to america and recorded sexual healing and he was a superstar again so the wikipedia for that album described it as he had made some stuff that was getting a little obtuse for his listeners. So he actually tried to make something that was a little bit more accessible, but just disco was not in his soul. And so no. I'll no. play you the single. It's, it's uh, called heavy love affair. What a bass groove on that thing, man! Yeah, Jesus, yeah. it's wonderful. But you know, he's chasing—he's chasing seventy-four. Yeah. Like he's just like chasing seventy-four, and it's not as good as what's going on. He's still holding on to that, you know. Mm-hmm. I like to go to the party, but that he's still on that, you know, the, the, the ghetto soul vibe. But it's nineteen eighty-one, yeah. and Sheena Easton's doing "My Baby Takes the Morning Train." <laughs> that's you know, exactly so right. that's gonna be there's just there's just no room for him on the charts, but. If that's a throwaway Marvin Gaye album, I know that's that's any other artist's best best record of all time. You know what I mean? That's that shows you the magnitude of his uh, artistry. You put that out nowadays, you'll get a best new artist Grammy nomination immediately, and and Pharrell will be on the phone that evening that's the right. second you release that. That's right. That's right. So let's just try to <laughs> let me do a couple of these real quickly because we've done the really significant yeah. stuff. Um, Ian Hunter is he's the Moth the Hoople guy, right? Yeah, was he hit me with your rhythm stick? Hit me, hit me. Was so, it that one? No, let me see. This I thought was kind of a fun little song. This is him too trying to remain relevant, chasing trends off of the album. We all chase. Off of we short, all chase. short back and sides. The single is called Central Park and West. And I mean, sure, you could sing all the young dudes to that chord progression. And the latest entry for the Bruce Springsteen theme competition. I mean, boy, again, that sounds like Springsteen to me. Like, what is it? What is it called? Central and West? Park and West? Central, was Park, the song? Central Park and West. So now, dude, because, you know, Springsteen was starting to make his mark then. I mean, now he's spanning out all over. You got to add Ian Dury to the Springsteen uh, Ian Hunter. influence artist. 
Ian Hunter, excuse me, Ian Hunter, exactly. Easy so, mistake uh, to make. Of course, you know, I mean, what, you know, it's the same guy, basically. Kind of. Uh, yeah, again, I, 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 very Springsteen-esque to me. I, I, are you feeling that, Tony? I got a little Springsteen there. To me, this just reminds me that. of when I was living in the East Village, and if you went to just the right bar at 3 o'clock in the morning, and, <laughs> yeah. and, da- and David Cross is in the corner <laughs> sending vibes that you should not go tell David Cross that you loved Mr. Show, and the same goes for James Eha in the other corner that... <laughs> This is on, and this is before you have Shazam, and you go, God, I fucking love this town. You know, and it does not something you, you feel the need to hear again. It's just, this is great. Yes. This, this is really setting the scene right now. Talk about setting a scene. That was the most beautiful picture. <laughs> I, I just, I saw that whole thing, and I felt something inside. I loved it. I there. felt the angst and anxiety of that. Well done, Polly. So, you never let uh, me down. Let me see. I- I'm going to take an interest as if we continue to do these episodes in seeing the genesis of hair metal. And I also have this weird interest. I pitched a channel to Sirius that for probably good reasons they were not all that interested in that was called um, Arcade Radio. And to me, it was all just stuff that would have played in an arcade, which is they already have a channel. Awesome. They have a channel called classic rewind that pretty much does that, but that's, it's not like Montrose. Sammy Hagar's old band is kind of the prototypical example of that. But the Michael Schenker group, Michael Schenker, I think is a brother of Rudolph Schenker from the Scorpions. Scorpions. Exactly. This is by all accounts. This is the creative peak of the Michael Schenker group. You would think it would have been a given at hair metal concerts that everybody was ready to rock, but it didn't stop half of the bands from having a song asking the musical question. Right. I mean, who, you know, it's, it's almost hypothetical though. You know what I'm saying? So it it can be a lot of things. Boy, is that the template to every rat song that's about to come our way in two to three years? Holy shit. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's, that's, I mean, round and round's a better song, but that's round and round. Right. Right. I, I don't know if they were too early or it just wasn't good enough, but my God, I mean, and it sounded like there was two different vocalists. One guy was singing the verse and there was simply a whole nother tone coming into the chorus, but that's a whole nother thing. But man, you can see where it's Shanker and, and, and Stephen Percy, the league, uh, the singer lead singer for rat is a guitar player first and foremost. So do not tell me that he didn't pick up that MSG record and go, huh? You think you're top? You know what I mean? So, I just learned something right there because I'm not a huge Michael Schenker catalog guy. Same. But boy, that just brought that just that's illuminated a lot of things. Little precursor that was coming in '83, which was the second wave of heavy metal coming from LA. Yeah. Rat, Quiet Riot, you know, it was coming. And I think MSG had a lot to do with it. Maybe it was the timing. Maybe hair metal needed MTV to deliver the cultural component because the White Snake, like all of their big hits were previously released by. Whitesnake and hadn't done a thing and then all they did was re-record Here I Go Again and maybe not Is This Love but at least two of their bigger singles they'd already put them out five years earlier and they were just a band they'd be somewhere on the bill 
and and yet by the time it was 87 here i go again was i mean perhaps the prototypical crossover hair metal song absolutely i, I think that you, you couldn't you couldn't say that any better it uh uh, it's also one of those songs that's led into the classic rock genre. Yeah, you know what I mean. It is a hair metal song, right? Hair metal band, but but White Snake is welcome to the Aerosmith Led Zeppelin playlist. Yeah, you know what I mean. Where Poison is not welcome for for the most part. You know, it's an interesting dynamic of how those things go. But that also has to do with producers. You know, who produced that? That was it. Was it did did Mutt Lang produce that White Snake record or was it Bob Rock? Because you know, like I said, like th there's little subtleties if you listen to the both songs and they just brought up some things. They added flavor, you know, uh, they added some of that 80s production that was missing when it was first released. I would have thought that you were right. The White Snake album, the White Snake album, which is self-titled, even though it wasn't their first album, is produced by Mike Stone and Keith Olsen. Wow. So I don't know. Boy, that, that's that's. I think a lot of that has to do with how David Coverdale has carried himself then and now. I saw a live video of them with Reb Beach from Winger, and now this is 10 years ago now, but it's still way past the heyday, and it was, they're better than any, they were better in 2010 than any hair metal band was in 1989, and I think that's a yeah. part of it, and David Coverdale, I think, you know, it, I, I don't think he would deny that he's a, a warmed-over Robert Plant retread, but sure. that also allows him to sit with those other kinds of bands and doesn't stick him with the, the spread Eagles of the world. You're entirely correct. And them not being an LA band and being supported for the UK, a lot of those UK bands got a pass with a hair metal tag. True. You know, they really did. Yeah. Unless you were, you know, uh, Tiger Tails Tiger or Dogs Tales. DMR, really, <laughs> but really trying to ape what was going on in LA. Yeah. You know what I mean? A lot of those bands got passes and they did. But also, Whitesnake started with that Judas Priest era. You know what I mean? Even though they weren't priests, they could play on bills with uh, priests. They could headline with priests. And they're very much like uh, Def Leppard is. They're just, a, you know, they, though they were in that hair metal thing, the cream always rises to the top. Mm -hmm. Whitesnake continue on, and so did Def Leppard. Yes, they had a drop in sales like every metal did, did band did in the 90s, but they still did great business live, both bands, you yeah. know? So, uh it had a lot to do with the playing and the catalog and the carrying themselves. And you're right. Don't forget, Def Leppard was part of that early, that, that 83, oh, yeah. you know, hysteria wave. So they kind of go back a little farther than that when hair metal kind of started, you know? My little, my favorite little factoid from that is they remixed and remastered and re-released all of the classic Def Leppard albums, but they couldn't do the first one because they said the master tapes became part of the foundation for some like millionaire guy's pool. <laughs> That's a great story. I wish I knew that one. That's amazing. Uh, elsewhere in 1981, Barry White is still hanging on. The Brothers Johnson, who I'm a fan of, are doing their thing. Grace Slick is in the the netherworld. The of hell not, is she doing in 81? She's she's not in Jefferson Airplane, and she's also not in Starship. Uh, let me see. Starship, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Was not. Oh, is she going for New Wave? Is she kind of Grace does New Wave? Like, what's going on with her vibe? There's a New Wave Grace Slick. There's another episode, which is you talk about people selling out. I'm fascinated by people who try and fail to sell out. There's a Grace Slick album that you, you, it's really, it's never been re-released and it's her fully leaning into kind of like a missing persons kind of thing. Right. And well, yeah, I, 
You know, Alice Cooper did that. Oh, sure he did. With his yeah. song, we're, we're all clowns, one and one and all around, we're all clowns. Yeah. I mean, that would be a great one. Guys that took a real left turn, they should have gone right. You know what I mean? That's a good That's a good episode right there. So uh, I'll leave with this. This is, I'm cheating a little bit. This album had already been released, but it is so important to what is to come in music. Released as a single to great success in January of 1981. Everybody says, and I have no reason to doubt the truth of it, that this is the first popular radio song to feature any rapping. Speaking, of course, of Blondie's Rapture. Yes, indeed. People know what Rapture sounds like, but yeah, that's that's a that's a harbinger of things to come in a major way. That's a great example of following a trend but doing it right. Mm-hmm. That track is is untouchable. I mean, that, that's an amazing funky track. It's almost like the track is a hit on its own. Oh, yeah. Just stay out of its way, you know. Yeah. And Fab Five Freddy got mentioned in that track. He Mr. sure Fab did. Five Freddy would go on to host Yo MTV Raps, which basically bought rap to every suburban household in the United States. That is. All of that is exactly true. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, gosh, there's there's <laughs> there's more stuff that we could talk about. UFO released an album that Eddie Trunk said changed his life. Chris Christopherson, a debut album from DeBarge. But uh, wow. we can only do we can only do so much. And I already know a couple of things that are going to be fun for us to discuss when we discuss the new album releases of February. 1981 but for now mark mcgrath i must bid you adieu great topics man you're on to something here Tully. i appreciate you having me my friend absolutely buddy see you next time <laughs>